Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 38, we're discussing Excalibur 37, House Call, the first of three issues within a mini crossover known as the Prometheum Exchange, starring Excalibur and the West Coast Avengers battling Doctor Doom and the very stale humor of Scott Lobdell. Excalibur number 37 was originally published in May 1991, and the creative team is Scott Lobdell on writing, Mark Badger on pencils and inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, Chris Eliopoulos on letters and Terry Cavanaugh on editing. Pod has a delightful guest today who we're so lucky to have with us to brighten up a story arc that I know Mav's been dreading for a while. I will introduce her in a moment, but first, your regular demons. I am Dr. Anna Papard. You know me already. I write and talk and teach sometimes about gender and sexuality in comics and pop culture. You can find me in lots of popular and academic places, which will all be in one place someday when I finally manage to finish my personal website. It's been an ongoing struggle. Whether I'm teaching, talking, or writing, I'm always on duty as Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager and I want to talk about teleporting today or to put it another way since I asked the questions around here I'm going to be making us talk about teleporting today but before we can do that we need to get through these intros Mav if you'd like to reintroduce yourself to our lovely listeners no I would not I, I don't want to um, and, and, I, and I've been thinking about this like you know for the last like 36 weeks of you You've know been how, how to handle this <laughs> as a kid I was a big fan of this book called you know there's a monster at the end of the book starring lovable furry old Grover. Yeah, yeah. And and see, Grover figures out that, like, if he just refuses to participate with the rest of the book, then, like, it can't go for- forward. So, like, that's what I'm going to try. Like, like, like there can be no episode. We'll just never have a show again. Just let's, let's not proceed, and then we never have to talk about Promethean Exchange. That is my plan. <laughs> Matt, that's a terrible plan. Yeah, spoiler, that didn't work. Yeah, I know, I know. But that's because, that's because like, you know, all you rotten kids kept reading the book instead of just that's stopping right. when Grover asked you to. <laughs> so anyway, um, hi, my name's Mav. Um, uh, 
I teach literature and pop culture and cultural studies at a bunch of universities in Pittsburgh. And I host another podcast called the Vox Popcast and, you know, where we talk about gender and sex and fun stuff. And we're not going to talk about stuff that's not fun today. So I'm sorry, listener. We have to talk about Promethean Exchange. It wasn't my idea, but we have to. So that's what we're doing. We're going to talk about Promethean Exchange, I guess. Hi. <laughs> Mav, I feel that I've become defiant in the face of your intro, and I'm going to make this the most fun episode possible. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Andrew, if you'd like to reintroduce yourself. Hello, I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University and the project lead for the Claremont Run. I am also, however, a father of two kick-ass child people, and therefore qualified to deliver a very important piece of dadly advice to our listeners. Ridiculing people for being slow on the uptake is a form of bullying and a massive dick move especially to someone who has not had the same educational or experiential privileges that you might have had and if i had the power to ground every member of excalibur other than kurt i see you buddy for their quote teasing of megan in this episode i would absolutely do so no paw patrol for a month wow i mean andrew you, you can ground kurt too i'm sure he's done something else worthy of it i give you my permission but anyway let's proceed we are joined in the limbo of prometheum exchange by a guest who really shouldn't need any introduction though i will give her one anyway today we are joined by the two-time eisner award-winning editor-in-chief of women write about comics writer editor critic and possessor of all the most correct takes the one the only the delightful nola Fow. welcome nola Thank you. Thank you very much. So, Nola, I of course know your amazing writing and editing work and all the other wonderful things that you do, but I've never talked to you before about your comics origin story, and we like to do that at the start of the pod. So, have you been a lifelong comics reader? Uh, pretty much, yeah. Um, so, I have, I have an older cousin who introduced me to comics at a very young age, and... He was kind of, he's 12 years older than me, so uh, like right about the time that I was sort of hitting that age where I was really choosing things to read on my own and getting very excited about him, he basically gifted me his entire comic collection that he'd acquired up to that <laughs> point because he was going off to college and, you know, he was downsizing things so he could live in a college apartment on a college budget. Yeah. And so, yeah, I got, uh, I was gifted a run of X-Men and Excalibur and X-Factor and New Mutants that was all right in the late 80s section. So, you know, I'm one of those people who, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a big Deadpool fan, but I lucked into a copy of New Mutants 98 just by virtue of having a cousin who had bought it when it came out. Uh, so, like, I have, like, my introduction to the X-Men was the Outback era. This is perfect. All of the, yeah, all, like, like just after Fall of the Mutants, uh, when they're all just kind of chilling and everyone thinks they're dead. And uh, <laughs> uh, so I have that and I, uh, you know, going into Inferno, like all of that great great material for an eight-year-old nola uh, <laughs> fantastic um but and, and then like the first comics that i actually got myself i found at a an antique store and it was like you know just a box and they didn't know what to do with them so they were all just like a quarter none of them were bagged or bordered or anything and falling apart and like perfect reader comics when you're that age and they all happen to be old x-men issues too so my actual first comic my first issue of X-Men was 173, which is the second half of the story where Wolverine goes uh, to Japan to get stood up at the Right, altar. right, right. I was like piecing the chronology together in my head and yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know, obviously, I'm biased because it was my first one, but for me, uh, it is a perfect issue. Like, there is so much going on. There are so many different storylines and threads being picked up and put down, and none of it is confusing. <laughs> <laughs> 
Like you can just, no. I mean, the only disconnect at all is reading that at eight years old in the late 80s, early 90s, and knowing that Rogue looks like, you know, her cartoon version and the one you see in this comic doesn't look like that. Like that's oh, yeah. the only stuff. But, you know, that's the first issue where uh, Storm showed up with her, her punk yep. look. Mm-hmm. That's uh, you get to see Rogue doing like a full Superman faster than a speeding bullet scene. Mm-hmm. Um, you get a Paul Smith uh, take on the Frank Miller uh, Wolverine fight. Like it's just it's beautiful the whole way through. And so yeah, like that was that was the one that hooked me. And having my cousin give me basically his entire collection at the time just sort of sealed the deal, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. You wrote such a great piece for Comics XF about the Paul Smith era, which is it, it it's my favorite era of Uncanny as well. It's yeah. just Hands it's down my it's so beautiful and like i get why he didn't stay long because he didn't like you know he didn't agree with the direction of the book but also i just wish he had because his stuff yeah. is just so <laughs> i know i love john romita jr as an artist i mean the daredevil run with anna senti is one of my favorite things ever and i really really love his x-men but at the same time i feel like i miss the paul smith kind of romancy smooth lined roundness so much and it is the era that i think about when i think about going back to that era yep mine's Ramita still. I think I don't. I don't know if I said that on our. First oh really? Episode. Well, when I started reading X Men, my I, I know exactly what my first X Men comic is. It's X Men number two hundred nine. It's, it's the Nightcrawler is beat up. You know where the X Men don't mess with us issue. And so in my head, because of when I started reading comics as a kid, uh, when I started reading X Men as a kid, that's how they're supposed to look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what particularly draws you to X-Men comics? I mean, obviously you have this origin story in which they were some of the first comics you read, but you continue to read X-Men comics to this day. What kind of draws you to this world? Um, well, one, I'm autistic, so like special interest, hello. Um, it, <laughs> it's just, it's been the thing that's been like present and constant in my life, my entire life almost. Yeah. Um, and two, people talk about like, differences between the x-men and the avengers and how the x-men are family and whereas the the avengers are like co-workers and and i find that that really rings true to me not just in that the x-men have external lives when they're not superheroing but also in that like those external lives are so interconnected and messy in the way that real families Mm -hmm. have been in my experience yeah um (laughs) these are people who may not always get along but always care deeply about each other and will always put everything aside for each other um, and it really differs from a lot of standard superhero affair in that they are not out there acting like policemen. They're not out there being cops for the world. You know, they are very often fighting government and fighting the police uh, because they are showing up for the most marginalized. They are showing up for the most vulnerable. And they continue to do that even when the world makes them look like the villains for it. And so, like, it's one of the things that, like, people joke about or people have talked about how, like, it's weird that the world, quote unquote, hates and fears mutants when the only difference is, you know, that they got their superpowers by a genetic accident versus an, a lab accident. But it's not just that. Like, that's a convenient cover story. People hate them because they show up for the least protected among us. Yeah. Uh, they are pushing back against the status quo constantly in a way that other superhero books do not. And I think that that's one of the reasons that they always have struggled to kind of escape a certain reactionary positioning in comics because of, you know, that that whole concept of illusion of change. 
the comics have. You know, you hear about the history of Claremont things like how he wanted Cyclops to, to age out and retire and, and all of that stuff. And comics aren't allowed to do that. And because of that, the X-Men aren't really allowed to grow beyond this most basic tenet. And it works in some aspects, but then, you know, you, you run into a lot of things where like the X-Men are super white most of the time. Yep. So it's like, how are you going to show up for the least among us if you cannot do so in your art and writing and stuff? So, but yeah, like that's the thing for me is that it's it's never really lost the focus on there will be systems and cultures and organizations in place that will keep people down and the X-Men show up to fight against that stuff in a way that other superheroes don't. I love that. That's like bringing a tear to my eye. I'm just like, that is exactly why I love them. And you articulated it so beautifully. I want to ask you about your specific history with Excalibur a little bit too. Uh, when when we, ha- we don't always have people on who know the series. Sometimes we have people on who are reading it for the first time. But when we do have somebody on that I know knows it well, I always like to ask about <laughs> what you kind of think about the cultural identity of Excalibur and how it kind of stands apart from other X-books or relates to other X-books because both things are obviously true i mean basically are we justified in doing 126 hours plus on this series (laughs) or have we made a terrible terrible mistake uh to my mind you are absolutely justified oh my Uh, god this this uh this era of x-books excalibur's absolutely always been my favorite one of the bunch a lot of that has to do with my love of kurt a lot of that has to do with my love of rachel But, you know, like I've always found other ways to relate to it as well. And part of that was, you know, like I got that box of comics from my cousin and the first, oh, like the entire first part of the Claremont run, like before he left the book is in there. All of this Promethium Exchange stuff, I think it like I think it went up almost to Excalibur number 50 was when he stopped collecting. And so like I got a real good early crash course in this series from the start and I really enjoyed the dynamics of it. I really enjoyed the way that you have these existing X-Men characters who are in this new environment with these new, I mean, roommates, I guess. And I really enjoy the way that their experiences inform one another. You know, one of my favorite early scenes is Kurt dropping Brian in the in the water. Oh, yeah, be still my heart. Um, that comes up a lot. And, yes, <laughs> and just uh, you know, basically telling me, hey, you got to act right. You know, I wrote an article about that years ago because I really like I love Brian as a character. Um, and I love Megan as a character, and I even love their romance, but those that early stuff is really rough. It's really hard to read because he is so cruel to her at times and so unfair to her at times, and I don't feel like the material gives... Like, it's good that Kurt shows up and drops him in the water, but I don't feel that that material gives enough room to Brian's abuse and the effects of it and, you know, his his own problems, like his alcohol addiction and things like that. And, you know, like, I came up in a, in a family with an alcoholic parent, so, like, this is personal stuff to me, but also it's, like... You can't start addressing that stuff and then just brush it off. And so, like, that's one of those things where it's like, I always have had issues with that, but I always related really well to the early series because it contained things that I could relate to immediately. Like, oh, this is just like dealing with my parents. Oh, this is just like every time I've had to move and I've been in a new house and I've had to make new friends and figure out how to get to get along with them. 
you know, and so like for Excalibur, to me, it's great that it's the funny book, but it's also the book that I relate to most. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And we've, we've talked about a number of those things before. You know, we've talked about kind of the domestic texture of this series and the fact that it's a team founded in trauma, which, you know, is true of the mutant experience in general. But particularly this team is formed in a moment of trauma in, you know, at least three of the members of this team thinking they have no one left and then coming together to do this kind of hopeful thing. And so much of the humor, I think, is effective because it never really escapes that traumatic context for me. I mean, like when it's at its most effective, it's almost like... Like the thing that I love about Kurt's humor is that it's this like reckless protest against the impossibility of his existence, like in a way, you know, oh, and yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Like, I love that about him. And I love that about his humor because it can come off just as silly, but I think it's the silliness that's rooted in something very serious. And when the book does that really well, it's just, that's just my favorite thing. Indeed. Can I ask you a little bit about your journey with women write about comics? And because obviously that's amazing and coming off your second Eisner win this year. And yeah, I mean, what's kind of been your journey with them? Like, what have you tried to do in your role as editor in chief? What is the site providing that you have not seen provided other spaces online? Uh, so I took over in, I took over as managing editor in 2018 and in 2019, I think I've got that right. <laughs> I get these years mixed up. Uh, was Who can tell anymore? Chief. Right. And, you know, it started with a friend of mine, writer and former editor-in-chief herself, Claire, who I think, God, I think like the day that I came out as trans, like the day she messaged me and was like, hey, pitch me anytime. Love that. She's she's so great. And I was like, huh, all right. Um, which was really cool, you know, because... One of the things when you come out as trans is is you you worry a lot about whether you're going to be accepted and where you're going to be accepted and things like that. And, and to have her do yeah. that just first day, fantastic. Um, so it took me a little while to get around to pitching her. But um, once I did, uh, I started kind of helping out and doing news stuff. And one of the things with my particular flavor of neurodivergence is that I gravitate automatically to organizational structures. So when I end <laughs> up in a community and they need someone to, you know, cross the T's and dot the I's and stuff. I'm like, oh yeah, I can do that. It's great for my brain. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I started, uh, I started as an assistant editor and helping out with stuff like that, scheduling and things like that. And then uh, Claire and Megan both decided to move on. Megan's Megan Purdy was the founder and they both kind of had hit their limit and they were, it was time for them to move on. So they did so. And uh, Wendy took over as the publisher, uh, Wendy Brown. And I ended up as managing editor at the time, mostly because I had been there for all of like three or four months at that point. And I was like, well, maybe a little bit longer. But anyway, I'd, I'd, I hadn't been there long enough that I felt like I deserved to take the, the editor-in-chief position then because I have my own issues with stuff like that. But so I was basically doing all the work anyway. And then uh, when he was like, you should just have the title. And I was like, all right. Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny. Like, like I'm, I'm fairly comfortable in it now, but I'm always like talking about this stuff. I'm like, I don't know. I just show up and yell about comics a lot and people think that that confers me with some degree of authority oh my goodness and um, you have excellent opinions about things and are very supportive of people and uh, promote all the good things that that site does and yeah anyway whatever you you, you should know these <laughs> things about yourself I'm, I'm just trying to deflate your self-deprecation a little bit I, I appreciate that i appreciate that because that is that is the thing is that i i, I default into that but I don't know, like I, I try to follow 
the examples that were set for me when I first started writing and the examples that Claire set for me. Like when I talk about her reaching out to me first day, that's important to me because not only because it was an incredibly kind gesture to me, but because it's an example that I use going forward. Um, Women Write About Comics is about providing a voice for people who have not been allowed to have it elsewhere. And it was started by cis women. So it's called Women Write About Comics because the conversation had not quite evolved to that point yet. But it is open to anyone who wants to pitch us along the marginalized gender spectrum. So that counts for women, that counts for non-binary people, that counts for trans men, that counts for agender people. It's not women and others, which is the thing that I, I, I make I take care to talk about because there's a bad habit of assuming that non-binary people are and trans men are, are women light and they're not. Uh, so when I talk about things, I, I, I make sure to specify that we are open to pitches from anyone along the gender spectrum, along the marginalized gender spectrum, I should say, uh, cis men need not apply. Um, <laughs> and we do that for a reason. And that's because nobody else does. Uh, nobody else relies on that. There are some sites that do a pretty good job of opening up to uh, marginalized people. And that's one of the reasons why I'm really happy to, to write for CXF and stuff like that. But nobody but us does that specific mandate, that specific thing. Like we are here for those people before anyone else. And that is a big deal because you know, the conversation around that stuff is still so ongoing and comics are so often behind the curve on that. Yeah. Um, they're so often behind where other pop culture mediums or media is and they're still slipping up constantly. Like they're still the same mistakes are still happening. You know, like we were talking, I should say we were talking, I'm not telling you who I was talking with or anything, but uh <laughs> You know, uh, the the subject of, of barrier gaze in TV was a few years ago, like like a big thing a few years ago. Um, and there was like one, what's the name, what's the word for it? When uh, when all the things come to a head at the same time. Watershed moment? Culmination? Yeah, something like, yeah, yeah. Uh, something like that. Yeah, culmination is a great word for it, where like the CW had a bunch of their teen drama shows. Oh. And like I was watching one night and like in one night, three of four episodes killed off gay people yep yeah it's yeah. when i'm cool. um, it's on when when the hundred happened and they killed yeah it, it over the course of three hours of yeah it was it was weird it was a weird unintentional thing i that just i don't think they tried to but it was so exactly telling. And, <laughs> it was so telling exactly <laughs> and that's the whole thing is that they didn't they weren't trying to but it just happened yeah and it's it was it was such a great flashpoint to talk about because it was like here are you guys like you all think that you're doing great with queer representation and it's great that they're there but you're all murdering them and you're all doing it at the same time while all the straight characters are fine and you know comics are still doing things like that they're still stumbling into things like that the 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 matthew rosenberg trans panic allegory murder of rain right before the current x-men era is a great example of that like that was 2019 um and that was a few years after that cw thing so it's just like this stuff just keeps happening and i can't speak to other people and and their handling of it or anything like that but to my mind things like that have to be watched for and they have to be done so constantly and regularly and the best people that you're going to find to talk about that stuff are the people who are directly affected by it and so for me the mandate of Woolwack is to provide that space to always provide that space for people when it doesn't exist anywhere else and i guess people have liked that because uh <laughs> won a couple of awards for it i guess <laughs> 
I very much like that. And I can't even tell you how much I appreciate that sites like that exist. I mean, I've talked often on the podcast and other podcasts about how lonely I felt when I was first getting into superhero comics and first getting into criticism of superhero comics and not feeling like there were kind of any spaces that did feel safe to just criticize the things that needed criticizing and yeah i mean sites like women write about comics and like comics xf like i just couldn't have imagined spaces like that at a certain point of time and the fact that they exist now to keep people accountable because you know there can be this logic that people when people talk about superhero comics or something like they just they've gotten better because they've kept up with society or done this and that i was like no they have been forced to do better because of sites like women write about comics that like make a noise and criticize these things and force them to do better they wouldn't have just done better on their own they do better because people hold them accountable yep and that's and that's the thing is that like it sucks that we have to keep doing it that way um yeah but also like i'm gonna keep doing it because like i care about comics as as a medium as an art form as a cultural touchstone you know the act of making comics the art of making comics is important to me and i want to share that with people and i want to be i want to be proud to share that with people i would i don't want to have to constantly be like oh you know these comics are great uh watch out for this thing yeah yeah uh, or watch out for that thing i don't want to have to constantly feel like i am apologizing for the thing that i love most in the world and so the best way to avoid having to make those apologies to people is to put it out there for the world and to to say hey you know we are not the people who should have to apologize for this the companies that publish these things the companies that don't think about these things because they don't bother hiring the people who would think about these things those are the people that we should be looking to for an apology and an apology is obviously not the end all of the situation we want them to do better and it's it's so hard sometimes to occupy this space and be like hey you need to do better and to deal with the blowback that comes with oh well you need to stop being a hater and you need to stop and it's like no we're not we love this stuff we I know, love it I know. so much that we are willing to stand up when it's when it crosses a, a line i can't remember somebody said uh was it tom spurgeon before he passed was it uh i'm going to save this industry into the ground i think i think that was a spurgeon quote because it's it's exactly like the way that i look at it like I am here to help comics get better. I am here to help people love comics. And if comics itself is going to get in the way of me doing that, then they're going to be the first on the block. Sounds a lot like the good parts of X-Men influencing positive actions in the present. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. <laughs> I could talk about this stuff forever, but unfortunately, we have to talk about Promethium Exchange. No, we don't. No, no, talk about this stuff forever. No, we'll talk. We'll, we'll talk I about Promethium Exchange a little bit, a little bit, <laughs> just a little bit, just a little bit. We'll we'll do an issue summary and we'll see where we go from there. How about that? Now, see, here's the thing: is that we can talk about Promethium Exchange as an example of this stuff. Don't feel we forced. We can. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. On that note, I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We'd trust you with the soul sword any day, but we will start our journey to Limbo with a plot summary. Excalibur number 37 opens in the kitchen of Braddock Lighthouse, where Kitty is practicing staying solid and Megan is practicing her cooking. So of course, things get goofy quickly. Kitty phases when she didn't mean to and all of the fine china goes flying. The team collects it just in time to be served pancakes that are only slightly on fire. From here, we proceed to Kurt praising Megan for recording a surprisingly legible phone message for Kitty from Dr. Doom. Everyone makes fun of Megan for falling for an obvious prank call until the good doctor arrives <laughs> at the door. Doom 
Doom wants Kitty to use Magic Soul Sword, which has been embedded in a rock at the foot of the lighthouse since Excalibur number 9, to help him travel to Limbo, where he plans to recover a substance called Prometheum, which he claims can be used to generate free, clean energy for all. No nuclear power hater Kitty is on board, and after Rachel reads Doom's mind and finds no evil intentions, so is the rest of the team. Outside the lighthouse, Doom weakens the walls between realities while Kitty draws the soul sword and slashes her way into Limbo. Alistair Stewart arrives just in time to watch Excalibur use Widget to follow Kitty and Doom. Everyone except Alistair disappears into Limbo just as the Lady of the Lake appears, just long enough to heave an exasperated sigh. The Lady of the Lake subsequently appears in the pool of the West Coast Avengers, who are enjoying some sun and BBQ until the Lady tells them about Doctor Doom's plans, which are, as everyone except Kitty predicted, less than altruistic. Meanwhile, back in Limbo, Kitty's attacked by demons and can't phase free because her soul sword armor blocks her phasing powers and she's apparently forgotten she's also a ninja who knows so <laughs> she gives the sword to dr doom who defeats the demons but won't give the sword back the rest of excalibur no arrives via <laughs> no kidding the rest of excalibur arrives via a widget portal to help but aren't much help doom traps rachel in a psychic loop and easily repels kurt with his force field though that has an unpredictable side effect it restores kurt's busted teleporting powers unfortunately this isn't immediately useful doom makes kurt crash into megan brian the only member of Excalibur left standing punches Doom right in the force field, which sends Doom flying. But even in Limbo, what comes up must come down. As Brian prepares to hit Doom again, the Doctor summons a host of distorted superhero-themed demons who prepare to attack. So here we are at the beginning of Promethean Exchange. We're all happy to be here with each other, but I think the general mood is we're not super happy to be in this crossover, <laughs> but I shouldn't assume. I should ask. And guest privilege, we'll start with you, Nola. What's your mileage on this issue? What's your mood coming into issue one of Promethean Exchange? Uh, so mixed. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is one of those ones that I absolutely like tore through as a kid and didn't really remember much of it except Kurt getting his teleporting powers back. And my memory was in, in fact so spotty that I did not realize that this was a Lobdell Badger book. I thought that this was back, you know, Claremont stuff. I remembered the art being better than it was. I remembered all kinds of things that weren't true. Um, <laughs> I will say that there is a, a style to Badger's art that I really enjoy. I'm not going to say that it's good or that it fits, but there is a an almost like intentional grotesqueness to it that I feel I kind of wish that we had seen more of him during the actual Inferno crossover. Yeah, I can see that. Because uh, there's a there's a chunkiness to it and a, a spookiness to it that uh, I think would have suited that. And I, I, I'm glad that he at least got to play a little bit with Limbo here for that reason. Lobdell, boy, that guy just keeps writing comics, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> sure okay you can, call, you, you can call it writing comics yeah that's fair he just keeps putting those words on paper yes that, that, that is a thing that happens <laughs> it is telling to me that he forgets characterization notes um which is as i recall is is like a thing with him going into other arcs and things like that like he just he just ignores things mm -hmm. and not like little things but like significant things like the idea that dr doom would call on kitty makes sense to me yeah. Um, like he literally saved her life and he would never let her forget that. Mm -hmm. Of course he's going to call in on her. So like there's that aspect of it. The aspect that not only that they would make fun of Megan uh, here, which I hate. It's one thing to tease each other in a living situation, but the way that they do it here and the way that Kitty joins in when she knows full well that Dr. Doom would absolutely come looking for her feels especially kind of cruel to me. Yeah, that's um, and true. you know, like as a as a neurodivergent person who has often been the one who doesn't get the joke in the room, like I've always really kind of empathized with Megan in that way. The other thing that I like that I did like coming back to this is Doctor Doom recently showed up in Excalibur in the modern times. It is 
structurally a shockingly similar story where he comes to them and is like, I want this thing. I'm going to make a deal with you. And then I'm going to be all Dr. Doom about it. And like the same basic thing happens. And it's, it's cool to kind of see that implemented. I like when comics do callbacks in a way that uh, let characters be true to themselves, but are also unique in individual stories. And I like Dr. Doom traipsing around other world or places like that and being Dr. Doom because he is the ultimate straight man when it comes to comedy. Nothing is funny yes. to him and everything is funny because of him. That makes total sense. <laughs> Other first impressions of this issue? Av, I know that you particularly hate this arc. I mean, do you want to like do your spiel about like the broad strokes of why you particularly hate There's... it? I mean, I know we could be here all yeah. day if you bring up everything, but can can you give us the broad strokes? I I was 15 when this came out. Maybe what is he? 91. I was 16 when this came out, almost 17. It was immediately clear to me that Scott Lobdell had never read a comic book with Kitty Pride in it before, despite the fact that he's been writing this one for months at this point. Like, <laughs> it, it made no sense. Badger's art is bad here. And I say that, again, this is this has happened on other people who are fill-in artists for Excalibur. Badger has lots of artwork that I like. He's got a really interesting Captain America run. He's done stuff with um, with Doom like before. He's done good artwork. This is rushed. I don't know why it's here. Nola, you were just talking about Megan. Like it comes across as cruel the way they treat her. And not only is it cruel, it doesn't make sense because a she's right, but b for her to to like have this problem with Doom of you know like oh well this great Doctor Doom Megan is a television addict she watches C-SPAN and CNN and like she knows who Doctor Doom is she's not a, an idiot like she wouldn't do that she'd be if anything she'd be less trusting of him Kitty is not a moron Kitty yes Doom saved her life but kitty knows what doom is she's fought him before she's friends with the fantastic four she knows who doom is right like why is she making ridiculous judgment calls and why is everybody else like oh like there's a point literally several issues ago where kurt was afraid to let kitty drive a car but you know go off <laughs> with dr doom sure like like nothing about this makes sense and then, like, well, you know, Mab, there, at the time, you criticized him for yes. uh, being too fatherly towards thought, Kitty. And, so he and, should, and I, he and should let her go off that. With there Doom. is a line. There's a there's a line where there's a line where you know you where you thread it in order to have good characterization, and yeah, you've yeah. got to be you've got to be consistent with your own rules of this universe. I don't think Kitty is above being immature. Kitty's at her best in this era when she's immature beyond where her intelligence should have her to be. She's got, you know, we've talked about that. She's got more intellectual intelligence than she has emotional intelligence and it gets her into trouble a lot. But that's not what happens here. Here she's just dumb in a way that doesn't make sense. And why Doom wants this to happen doesn't make sense why they give you know kitty's like hey just take my best friend's magic sword that is her soul sure you know like nothing about this <laughs> nothing about this makes sense and i and i heavy it then. heavy air quotes on best friend there <laughs> yes <laughs> i mean she would say that <laughs> i'm not saying iliana's perfect that's one of the reasons i like iliana but kitty should not just be handing her soul over to dr freaking doom like that right. makes like, no, no sense no. No, when I say heavy quotes on best friend, you what think I they're mean lovers. Is they're yeah. just 
they're gals <laughs> being pals. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. And we've and 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 in my fanfic, they absolutely are. We've talked about that on the show a lot. But like, still, she just hands it over to Doctor Doom. And like, reading this at seventeen, I'm just like, why? Why any of this? Like, what about this seem like a good idea? Why did no one in editorial go? None of this makes sense, Scott. What are you doing? And the answer is because no one cared. And if they don't care, why should I? Uh, yeah, who was editor? Uh, specifically, editor of this book, Kavanaugh. Oh, of this book, it's Kavanaugh, oh, Kavanaugh. Terry Kavanaugh. Oh, okay. Yeah, he edits it throughout. So, yeah, we we've criticized him a little bit in the sense that some of these things should kind of be his purview, and yeah, a lot of things seem to slip. <laughs> Yeah, well, and it, and it, and this is absolutely like that era. Like, it's not quite the full excess of the '90s, but like, it's absolutely that era where the X Men as a franchise and thus all related things started to grow and grow. And there was really this attitude of just more and more, and don't think about it too much, just make it happen. And Lobdell, one of the reasons that he was so successful was that he could do that. He was fast, uh, well, and he remains fast. Yeah, um, which is, you know, that's how he got that new 52 job that he stuck with for so long, because like Harris's reign at DC was so much like this in that it was just pump those comics out, just make them happen. And Lobdell was able to do that. But I think the thing that gets me about this specifically is, you know, we've talked about the way that Katie's portrayed and the way that Megan's portrayed, but it's really, it comes down to the way that Lobdell treats women in his stories as a whole. Mm-hmm. Claremont, like Claremont is sometimes weird about women to be charitable, but he never shied away from letting them be complete three-dimensional characters. He never shied away from letting them have the spotlight and having their own victories and having their moments of triumph and things like that. Lobdell, I mean, he kind of does it here because he has Megan come back and be like, you know, look, I was right. Dr. Doom really is here. But even that is itself a joke at Megan's expense because, like you say, yeah. she should know who Doctor Doom is. She shouldn't be proud that he's in the li- in the no. living room. Yeah, yeah, she knows better. Like, yeah, we're talking about so, agency, right? That's that's yeah. what Lobdell doesn't give his female characters in a way. Yeah, that maybe and and so yeah, here here she's so much about being the correct character that it's almost like she's dissociating from the moment. The only way that I can read this and appreciate it is is. For some part of my brain to go, oh, Megan's Megan knows what's going on and knows this is bad, but she just doesn't know how to handle it yet. Yeah. Like that's the only thing that I can come come away with this because seems generous. She's think... just portrayed as she's portrayed as absolutely clueless. I well, not even just clueless. I think she's portrayed as de- de- developmentally challenged. Like Labdell seems to think yeah. that she she has a mental handicap. She doesn't. She's illiterate. You know, she's just not trained to read. That's it. And frankly, over time since then, she's possibly dyslexic. But there's never been any part of Megan that is unaware. People treat her like that because there's something wrong with other people. People treat yes. her like that well, because she's female and blonde and she's, pretty. She's hyper aware. Yeah, but she knows what's going on and always Megan. Has. Megan is absolutely an avatar of the hyper-feminine bimbo stereotype Yes, in superhero comics. And when she is used to actually interrogate and challenge that stereotype, she is fantastic and amazing. She can subvert it. When she's in the hands of someone like Lovedell, that doesn't happen. 100%. Andrew is just like beating his little drum over there. That is exactly, I think you've perfectly captured his feelings about Megan. Yes, very Uh, much so. 
listen, like the, the athletic Excalibur is a five person team with three different, spe- like three specifically different types of women probably goes a long way towards why I gravitated to, to it so much as a closeted trans person in the, in my childhood. You've got your butch, uh, butch coded lesbian. You've got your super smart POV character and you've got your hyper feminine bimbo stereotype. Like so many trans people, so many trans women I know love Excalibur and these three characters have so much to do with that. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, that's that makes the a lot really compelling duality of Megan in terms of that stereotype you mentioned is that she's also incredibly vulnerable. Yes. Uh, which is not an element we usually see associated with that stereotype. Yes. Yeah, she was, I mean, full on mistreated and in so many ways. And to, to see her pursue concepts of beauty that are informed by her pop culture obsession as a conscious choice because she's a shapeshifter to choose beauty and happiness and humor and all of these things despite the things that have happened to her is it's a really powerful message and i think that i think this is probably the start of where she she gets done a huge disservice as a character and i don't really think it's stopped even today yeah Yeah. (laughs) many thoughts about today but yeah you talked about rachel kitty and megan being you know sort of avatars of I i don't know how you phrased it but I guess except femininity, femininity, yeah, but, yeah, womanhood. Yes, and I think that that was again. I'm not, not even reading this as 47 year old me, you know, who does this for a living. Reading this as 17 year old me, 30 years ago, it was clear to me that he didn't understand who he was writing. There's no character here, not just because they make stupid decisions. But because if someone changes a character, fine. You know, I might not like it, but but you can say, well, that's not how I would have done Kitty Pride. But OK, at least there's a, there's no logical consistency here. I don't know why anybody does anything and not even just the women. I don't know why Doom makes decisions he makes. Dr. Doom should be the easiest character to write in the world if you just want to do. Look, humorless, megalomania, humorless, megalomaniacal <laughs> maniac and be done. But that's not there. It's just like a it's a guy in a suit that just makes decisions because the next page of the story needs him to and it's yeah. weird and it's bad and, yeah. and again and i knew it as a teenager i did not as a phd as a teenager and i'm reading this going Ugh, why yeah and yeah it's 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 very clear that lobdell is not the kind of writer who asks himself what these characters would do in certain situations mm-hmm. he's the kind of kind of writer who comes up with a scene and just maps the various dialogue bits to whoever's present yeah like these these are not characters so much as they are mouthpieces for his jokes and yes. they're not good yeah. jokes yes <laughs> <laughs> like i could I, I could forgive it if they were good jokes yeah, they're not. but they're not good jokes or even or even clever i mean this, this isn't a joke this is um the the and i'm sure we'll get to it more later but like kurt gets his teleportation back here kurt's been broken in storyline terms for like five years now you know, like, so, like, it's been a while that he's been dealing with this, and it goes away for science? I mean, like, none of it makes yeah, sense. Like, no it's reason. literally, oh, by the way, I tried to teleport through a force field, and that fixed my powers that I that have been, like, a massive storyline, just in a throwaway line, because. And I, and I, like, I read it, and I go, what, what? What happened there? Why? Yeah. So that was all for nothing, right? Yeah. Oh, it it hurts me deep in my soul. Yes. (laughs) Well, I mean, 
mean, let's talk about that because that was going to be one of the things I wanted to talk about, which is Kurt getting his powers back, which is, you know, Kitty losing the soul sword and Kurt getting his powers back. Both of those things for context were bound up in Alan Davis said he wanted these things done before he came back. So this was an Alan Davis slash editorial mandate thing that Lobdale was asked to do. Um, and Davis has discussed that in interviews, which is odd because then Davis has Kurt get his leg broken so I don't really know why he wanted the powers back, but it's just something that he said that he wanted. So Lobdell does it. Editor should have said no to either to either Scott or to Alan. <laughs> One, of, I mean, and, and I and I don't know the business reason behind it, but Terry Cavanaugh, your job is to you know is to own this and be in charge of the ship. So someone should have said no. This is a, what's happening here is stupid. One of you two needs. But to I be mean, <laughs> but I mean, you can restore Kurt's powers and have it be more meaningful than it is here. But I mean, I'll, let's talk a little bit about that and about what it kind of means and why we're kind of frustrated with it. If we are frustrated with it and I'll, I'll give it to you Nola because you you mentioned at the top you know Kurt being a character that you particularly enjoy like superpowers usually represent something of the identity of a character right these are stories that are told through bodies and the superpowers that a character have affect who their character is and represent their character in various ways like for you what does teleporting kind of represent for Kurt why is he given this power and what can we sort of understand about him as a character through his possession of that power so the thing about tele about curse teleporting is that it is a non-offensive power um and it's not yeah. even really a defensive power it's a power that's based around mobility and freedom and for a character who looks like kurt and who has that prejudice against his looks tied so deeply into his origin his power set is one that allows him to escape it's one that allows him to remove himself and others from harm and that movement is a central theme of his whole character it's not just the teleporting it's the fact that he is hi like hyper agile it's the fact that he is you know he's got prehensile tail he's got prehensile toes uh, he's everything everything about him everything about him is built for movement for yeah. for a physical transition from one place to another and that extends to his characterization as well, because he is never, like Megan, he's never the things that happen to him. He's always what he does to move on from that, what he does to grow past that. And that hope and that optimism, that the idea that you can overcome things and you just have to have faith, whether that be in a higher power or whether that simply be in yourself, you just have to have that faith that you can overcome, even when it seems like you can't. That is a core tenet of him to me. Um, and as somebody who grew up in an abusive environment, as somebody who grew up not really being understood by my peers and things like that, like the idea that you can just hold on and just keep moving forward is core to his character for me. And it really made me latch on to him. Another thought, like you, you were talking about um, the way that his humor is tinged by his trauma and the way that he jokes yeah. about things in a way that doesn't make light of those things it doesn't ex it, it doesn't yeah. ignore them but it's like the, the those things inform his humor and choosing to laugh at, at the things that happen to you choosing to laugh at your own pain is just that it's a choice it's a powerful choice uh it is is a reclaiming of power from a place where you didn't have it before um and so kurt really means a lot to me for stuff like that Oh, I'm gonna like tear up again. I love that so much. You've just had such a wonderful way of putting it into words throughout this. But um, but yeah, I I was just gonna say that that the first personal essay I wrote about Nightcrawler had written about him academically briefly before that. But the first personal essay I wrote a couple of years ago when I kind of got back into X Men comics after an absence, and I did tie that first personal essay to my feelings of insecurity, but also to navigations of disability. I have um uh, something happened to me 
four years ago now where I got nerve damage in my inner ears and which sounds like a minor thing but it was actually awful I could barely even like read books for a year basically my vision would never stay still and I had vertigo and nausea all the time Um, it really really sucked and so then thinking about that power of teleportation and escape and it just became meaningful to me in a different way kind of after that experience and I mean X-Men Gold isn't a good series Um, (laughs) but there was like a panel from it that I really thought about a lot and I used it within that essay like after kitty leaves colossus at the altar phasing through the ground go kitty um but then colossus is standing there and truly and truly <laughs> iconic best moment iconic. best moment in iconic. comics ever <laughs> it's great uh but then colossus is standing there and he just says like kurt can i be somewhere else please and then Kurt's like, yeah, of course. And I just like that, can I be somewhere else, please? And that's Kurt's power. And he can do that for himself and he can do that for other people. But there are costs and benefits of his power as well. Like Andrew, I was texting with him one time about it and he said something to me, like, and I, I'm probably paraphrasing, getting it wrong, but that it's so tragic that his power to escape is paired with physical features that frighten people because he would be the best person for saving people. But sometimes when he tries to save people, he terrifies people and he can't save them. And I'm like, and- like, oh Isn't my that God. just the Claremont way? Oh, I know. All these ironies of like people's superpowers. Cruel but yeah, Andrew, did you have anything to add about kind of what you see as the symbolism of Kurt's teleporting? Like, I want to talk about disability a little bit more and stuff. And, you know, obviously I could talk about Kurt and teleporting all day. But as a Claremont scholar, I don't imagine that you, you have thoughts about it as well. No, I'd like to defer to you because you wrote that beautiful piece on Nightcrawler's <laughs> teleporting for the Claremont run Twitter that I benefited from. So. <laughs> Oh, well, no, I think I'll, I'll put it back to Nola to talk about like the disability angle a little bit, I think, and then maybe we can get into it a little bit more. But we've talked in the past about Kurt losing his powers and that resonating with disability. I mean, in terms of what he can do and then not do, he essentially has a disability. And I think it's useful to kind of understand him in that context. But also that this is a character who has resonated with disability, you know, for fans, you know, basically since his inception. You know, there's the uh, Stephanie Burt uh, tagged me on that letter from uh, Carolyn Amos from Uncanny Number 149, which I've seen many times before, but it's such a beautiful letter where she's writing about her experiences of disability and how important Kurt is to her. And for many of the reasons that you were just saying, Nola, you know, about his approach to life and sort of the ways that he handles his trauma and his difference. And yeah, I I was wondering about your thoughts about about that, Nola, about the usefulness of reading that character within the context of disability and if you had thoughts about the way that it's been handled in this series sort of up to this point. Uh, I'm very glad you asked that because I'm very excited to talk about disability and mutants. Excellent. Um, like for one, it's a great week for it because that sword issue just dropped about WizKid and oh, God, so I good. Know, I know. So good. Um, I haven't read it. Uh, <laughs> just uh, so good. The I mean, book's good. First three pages. Not only if you agree, the first three pages of that, or actually even the first page. Excellent. Brilliant. It's yeah. a, it, first page. Uh, no spoilers for Andrew. The first page of oh, that no, comic no. is just Taki explaining the difficulty he has getting out of bed, but not as though it's a problem, as though it's just his life. Brilliant. Yes. Loved it. It's so good. Yes. God, just I love the discussion of it and the focus on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like dis- disability mutanthood is so rarely examined in that context. Cable is a great example of that because Cable is a guy whose mutant power is tied up in keeping a chronic disease at bay and who literally has prostheses all over his body because of that disease. And you see so much of Cable as the soldier, but you don't get to see him as, as a person who is living with disabilities, who is living with all kinds of things like that. And specifically, I don't think that we see enough 
discussion of mutants not being able to use their powers as a disability of its own. And, you know, obviously, as an eight-year-old, uh, I loved this issue because Kirk got his powers back. Like, whatever other discussion of this was would, would have been above my head at that time. Mm-hmm. But one of my favorite characters got to be happy and jump around and say he was cured. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah that's cool. Yeah. Eight-year-old me was like, oh, yeah, neat. But as an adult, like, I really love the attention that was given to it over time. For all that I'm disappointed by this resolution, I love the fact that it was a thing that persisted for a long time and that came up a few times. I wish that it had come up more and I wish that it were examined in a little bit more depth. But I love that it's there and I love that it's persistent. One of the things that is really striking to me is how it has to affect Kurt's mental outlook to be a person who is known for movement and known for escape and known for being able to do things like, hey, teleport Colossus away from the side of uh, Kitty doing the greatest thing ever to him. (laughs) Um, I have been in situations in my life where mental illness or other things have prevented me from being there for people in the way that I wanted to be. And the guilt that comes with that, the concept that I am somehow lesser of a person because I cannot provide the people that I love what they need from me is God, like ravaging, you know, like it just eats yeah. you up. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I have to think about that in ton- context of Kurt. I have to think about like what it must be like to be a person who is who your Id- identity is so tied up in movement to not be able to do that and to not specifically not be able to do that for other people or if you can in an extremely limited capacity because he did he did teleport other people a few times but it was much more draining for him than it was typically and it's like i am always always seeking to to relate personal experiences as comics because that's just what i do but for instance by example i was in a car accident earlier this year i was actually in two car accidents this year but we'll talk about the most recently Oh, oh yeah like it has been a year yeah. uh the most recent one after the accident very very basic tasks were extremely difficult for me in much the same way that teleporting is difficult for kurt holding conversations organized thinking anything that involved filling out paperwork all of that stuff was so exhausting to me and so draining and i would get through a portion of it and just break down crying because i just couldn't do more and i felt like i should be able to because I knew that I had been able to before, but I wasn't in a place where I was able to look at the fact that like I had been in an accident and was suffering. Uh, I wasn't able to look at that objectively and go like, I wasn't able to take myself aside and go, hey, you've been through a lot, just take it easy. And so going back and reading this and, and reading the, the, the framing of Kurt struggling with mobility and God, the irony of him breaking, having his leg broken right after this and once again having to do that, it really affected me, and I don't, I don't know that I agree with how simply Lobdell made this change for him. But even just rereading this, like Kurt's absolute joy and having that freedom, and just, just knowing that you could once do something and you can't, but all of a sudden now you can again. I bought that joy. Yeah, you know, like that, that clicks with me because it is so satisfying to reach a level before where you knew that you could do stuff. And you haven't been able to again for a while. It's so satisfying to get back to that point. And just seeing Kurt do that is maybe the like the bright point of this issue for me, even though it is generally an abysmal issue. Also, uh, can we talk about Kurt being stuck in this force field? Because, you know, like he gets his leg broken in Davis's stuff later, but like his leg straight up looks broken already in one of these panels. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, when 
when we were thinking about and when I did the Claremont Red Thread about teleporting and thinking about sort of the risks of teleporting. And so I talked about that um, Uncanny 147 issue where he has to, Doom actually imprisons him inside a featureless box and he has to blind teleport out of it, right? And he almost gets killed doing that because blind teleports are risky anyway. But there's some really great thought bubbles there where he details the risks of teleporting. And if he teleports blind, he could materialize inside objects and people. And you sort of knew that, but him saying that and you realizing that that could happen at any time then that's a risk that he's constantly contending with i mean that gets back to that faith that he has to be able to have that faith even just to be able to teleport regularly even when he does have his powers and so that materializing inside something that he's not expecting to materialize inside of i mean that must be just horrifying <laughs> and like that's essentially yeah. what happens here yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, and so, like, I absolutely buy how painful. I don't understand how it cures him. Yeah. Um, similarly, I don't understand how Doom's, uh, like, the narration as written here is, if Doom's armor can channel the local electromagnetic field, he can easily change your direction on a whim. No. How? No, you can't do that. How? <laughs> I don't even understand you how he not... understands. Uh, yeah. He, nothing about Doom yeah. makes sense. He can't, like, why can he hold magic sword? I don't yeah. know. That... But like, <laughs> like, like, like the whole point of Kurt's teleporting is that he is not moving through space, mm. like through our space. Nope. He is literally leaving our space, moving through a completely different dimension, and then coming back into our space. You have read the official how... handbook. <laughs> like, how, how can you change the direction of that in our space? Like, that does not work. And this is, I mean, I guess this, under, this is more of that magnets are absolutely amazing in the marvel universe which is why like <laughs> like you can do anything with magnets in the 60s you could <laughs> and apparently right up to the apparently right up into the late 80s early 90s <laughs> no i mean again nowhere else this is just him it was lazy like why does yeah. that work because lovedell didn't care he he, he just yeah, didn't and, care and that's what that's yeah, about. and and like that's the thing is that like when Claremont would do stuff like this, and Claremont absolutely did some silly science nonsense, but when he would do it, he would at least kind of throw together a, an explanation of sorts. It didn't always hold up, but he was like putting a little bit of effort into it at least. And Lobdell just doesn't, which you know, fair. Like I guess that's why they that's why they brought him in. That's why they had him do it because Lobdell will show up, no questions asked, and write the thing that you tell him to write. But also, like, why didn't like like you guys were saying, Kavanaugh should have pushed back on this either with Lobdell or with Davis. Why didn't Davis just incorporate this into its run, like as a demand? Why why did this exist when Davis could have just come back to the book and done this himself? in a better way i mean hard to know i mean and uh, well obviously impossible to know unless we actually asked him and who knows whether he'd tell us the truth anyway but i mean i do have questions about that because davis is somebody who clearly really loved the character of nightcrawler and i am surprised that he wouldn't want to tell that story himself yeah yeah i don't know i mean i don't know what his actual demands were he's talked about it but at, at the end of the day it's just not that it's not that it would have been a, a great storytelling. It would have been really poor storytelling. But like, if you really want to fix them that bad, this is a one panel line where you say, oh, Kurt, you're back from visiting Reed Richards. Can you teleport now? End of story. Like that literally solves this way more fulfilling than the fact that he should have been sawn in half in that panel. That's what should have happened. <laughs> it, it should have cut off his legs. And I don't want to see Kurt's legs get cut off, but like that would have made sense science wise, not whatever happened there and well, yeah you know, and like like that relates back to like when he when he died against bastion like not super pleased with that 
whole thing, but it made a kind of logistical sense in that, of course, Kurt is going to try to teleport in to save someone. And of course, when this happens, this is how he goes. Like it made a, a an internal kind of like there was there was a logic to it. And that is just not present here. Yeah. And for me, it's like, I don't even really care how Kurt gets his powers back, but to not see sort of a complex reflection from Kurt about what that means to him, I think is where it fails me because I just would love to have something where he's thinking about it because the only, I mean, since Sword is Drawn, the only kind of reflection we got about it was in Girls Go From Heck. And we talked about it at that time. He's doing the cliff diving thing and, you know, beating himself up for not having his powers anymore and pushing himself. And we talked about a lot of different things related to that scene you know him want him appearing beautiful and sexy in that scene was important because it was about getting back in touch with his body and everything and we saw him not having oh. full awareness of the ways that it was affecting him too and i found also, that really it, interesting it is always important for him to appear beautiful and sexy <laughs> Well, of course it is. Of course it is. And he always does. But uh, but yeah, but yeah, to just not get him kind of reflecting on that, because I just love the thought of him as a teleporter and the relationships between space and time and movement that, you know, Nola talked about so beautifully. All of those things are so important to him. And I just would have loved some reflection on that in the actual comic. And now I'm like, I should just do it as a fanfic. And <laughs> so, well, so I, I have a question for the group then, because if, if we and we're focused seat on Kurt because the comic explicitly calls out that we fixed him right here but you know at some point between girls school from heck and this story kitty's phasing powers got fixed too I don't know why but like it's never an issue again and it's never been mentioned but she's fine now until the next time they break well yeah well yeah but I mean but the the (laughs) the fact that she's been up until up until now she's been stuck as a ghost unless she concentrates really really hard and she appears to be better from this point out like even even in Girl School from Heck, she was, you know, like something magic was happening to stop her from to make her solid. But now she's just better. And let's not talk about it because because we don't care about the story and we don't care enough about Kitty to question it, I guess. Like, I, I don't know. Labdell's favorite character is Brian. I stand by that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like, br- like Brian's the only one who doesn't get knocked out. I think I think Brian is exactly the kind of character that he sees that Labdell sees as the hero. So that's what's happening here. Well, yeah, of course, he's dressed in patriotic colors, and he's tall and blonde and buff, so of course he's the hero. Obviously. Mm -hmm. (laughs) At one point, he says, as in Brian, says that despots can't be trusted. Brian, who is the symbol of the British Empire, says that (laughs) despots can't be trusted. And like that shows self awareness, and that's the thing. Like in Claremont's hands, that would have been a joke. Like that would have been a really good joke. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like like that would. (laughs) That would be the kind of thing in the hands of people who understood Brian Braddock absolutely would have been a top tier joke. But Lobdell <laughs> just throws it out here as generic superhero lines because Lobdell doesn't American understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lobdell doesn't understand <laughs> no what jokes are. <laughs> Well, let's shift to talking about Kitty for a little bit. I mean, I could continue talking about Kurt for forever, but since we've we've gone on for a while already, I want to make sure that we talk about Kitty. And I wanted to ask you, Nola, I mean, you brought up Kitty and Ileana earlier, and of course we brought up their relationship at other times on this pod, not in tremendous depth, but what do you think for you 
this relationship between them and Kitty possessing the soul sword and having Ileana's armor and all of that. I mean, what representational work is that doing? And why is it so painful to have that just tossed aside here? Because I hate it so much. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, like, I think uh, Claremont has described it as being a soul bond between the two before. And, you know, like, he's he's definitely been on the record uh, in the aftermath of subtextual queerness regarding Kitty and Rachel and Yana. To have the soul sword in kitty's hands i think was powerful in that it was a tangible artifact of their love for one another that could not be denied because of the the tying of it to specifically yana's soul you know we talk about soulmates and we talk about things like that when we talk about love and when we talk about romantic contexts and to have that exist as as a tangible item in the world and to be in Kitty's care at the time was a very powerful thing, even as Kitty was allowed to move on and develop a relationship with Rachel. And, you know, like Claremont's been on the record about that, too. Like Kitty and Rachel were endgame for him. His whole thing was that they were they were supposed to end up together. And I liked I always liked that the specter of Ilyana was hanging over that. I always liked that Kitty had this thing from her past that was a part of her life and it was allowed to be a part of her life even as she moved forward because Kitty, like her, is a character about movement. Mm -hmm. Her whole thing is that walls can't stop her. Her whole thing is that gravity can't stop her. She can literally make steps of air and I think that that's why Kitty and Kurt always were always great friends. I think that's why people gravitated to those characters together. Um, that's probably why both of them get to star in a Weezer song and nobody else does. <laughs> um, <laughs> like that whole thing is kind of goes back to what I was talking about way early on or like much earlier on when, when I was talking about how about the illusion of change in comics and, and the way that things are generally not allowed to move forward, but the way that X-Men specifically always tried to push that anyway. It's very much that. Yana was a part of Kitty's life growing up. And like the discussion of the age dynamics between the two of them is a whole other thing. It's weird that Kitty and age dynamics comes up so very often. Yes. Um, because literally... <laughs> Her partners are a guy who's too old for her, his little sister who was too young for her but got magically aged up to be her age, and a girl from the future who is the daughter of her adult mentor figures and for whom she was an adult mentor figure in that mm -hmm. future. Like, the age dynamics are weird across the board, and I don't understand why that's such a thing. And, like, Kitty, maybe examine your tastes in people. <laughs> oh, I've said like, that on Kitty, the show. Maybe, I've said that like on the maybe, show. <laughs> maybe think about it, Kitty. Think about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, well, I mean, if I, if I did a deep cut trying to make that meaningful, I could relate that to the way that she is an indeterminate character. I mean, in terms of her powers and in terms of the fact that she's always breaking boundaries and, you know, on previous episodes with uh, Margaret Galvan, especially we, we related that to queerness, but, and so I could kind of, but I don't know that it's on purpose in all of those examples. So I don't know that I would want to argue that strongly. Well, and it's one of those things where like, all of those examples are by the same person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, like Chris, what are you doing? What are you doing, buddy? What are you trying to say here? That's why I think um, it's on purpose because yeah. So yeah. I mean, just to, I realize the problematic nature of the Colossus relationship. I think the problematic nature of the Colossus relationship is important to Kitty because it's a problem, right? Like he is. The, oh yeah. He is as untouchable and wrong for her as people we've talked about this on the show is he too old for her yes should a 13 year old gr girl have a crush on a 19 year old boy 
yes again. The fact that yeah, the absolutely. fact that he lets it happen, that's on him. That's him doing yes. the wrong thing. And and yeah. so I I get it, right? And I, I think that she needs to make these mistakes, but also I also think that Kitty continues to make these mistakes even after Claremont leaves. This is why I'm okay with the Pete Wisdom relationship because Kitty. Ooh, well, we'll talk about it when we get to it. Yeah. But Kitty makes decisions that are bad decisions quite frequently. The the thing about that is that I do like that aspect of Kitty as a character, as she is a person who makes bad decisions, especially because she is a person who is very much the POV character, very much the uh, smart smart character who's good at everything. But she makes terrible decisions, and I do like that. It is extremely significant to me that after Claremont, the two people who most famously wrote her were Ellis and whedon who both have since had accusations come out against them about inappropriate conduct with younger women Mm -hmm. over whom they had power and their focus on kitty specifically and treating her that way sours a lot of that for me yeah i think it is it is it is very hard to think about that from a context of anything outside of these these men in their 30s uh writing her as a care like as the type of woman that they would like to have and we I would love to see we and Whedon particularly going on record several times as essentially saying he was doing it on purpose. I mean, before the yeah. before the allegations about him became public, you know, Whedon has said several times, oh, you know, Buffy is Kitty. He's writing Kitty Pride on purpose. It's so, yeah, I yeah. think but I, I think that problem matters for exactly the Colossus reason. Right, but the thing is, is that Colossus doesn't really get held accountable to right. any real degree, mm-hmm. uh, and that's and that is the thing is that if you're going to do that kind of commentary, if you're going to be that intentional, you have to follow it through, and it's not a thing that's ever followed through. Colossus is allowed to be this sad, mopey weirdo, and everyone's like, "Oh, Colossus, you're such a soft heart," and everything like that. No, like, no, <laughs> dude, you're 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 a dude who turns to into metal, and you have a giant temper problem. Uh, and you're super controlling and manipulative and it's fucking weird. Can I curse on here? I don't yes, know. Absolutely. Yes, you can. Um, <laughs> uh, it, and like, Kurt will stay in one of my favorite moments, foreshadowing for I think like 50 episodes from now, one of my favorite Excalibur moments is Kurt will say that to Peter in almost, yeah. in almost those words. It's going to be a while, so, <laughs> but he will, he will bring it up. Yeah, and it's, and it's, but it's a thing that continues to this day. Like, mm-hmm. He's just allowed to be that way and, and it's not examined and it's not interrogated and like this is one of those things where uh, it's the reason why a site like Wack exists because I love tying the things that I'm saying back into it themselves in a cyclical fashion. Wack exists because there are comic writers or comic readers who see these things from the perspective of being a woman or being non-binary or being trans or being marginalized in whatever capacity who see these things and it's so obvious to us because we see it everywhere in the world. Anna, you can back me up on this. Like these are things that absolutely happen in real life. And, you know, minus the walking through walls and turning to see um, I mean, you know, like, I did it once, but okay. I was, it, was, it was a hell of a fight. <laughs> um, but, like, it's, we see these things and we are commenting on them constantly because the companies that publish these books continue hiring cis white men to write these books. And they don't see these things because they never have to. It's never like they're never forced to confront these things. It's always for them. It's always 
something that happens to people around them, but never something that they've had to deal with personally. And so they lack the proper perspective on it. Like they honestly don't have the education in a lot of times to challenge it in the proper way. And that's why it's so frustrating to see them continue to get the jobs over and over because (laughs) we know better. So Kitty, for me specifically, to see her make these decisions in this issue, to see her just give up this soul sword that is so important to her, it is absolutely a microcosm of that whole thing because here you have a character who is known for making bad decisions, bad decisions. And so great, she's making bad decisions here, but she's being written as doing so by again, another cis white dude who has been accused of inappropriate behavior with women. And it just keeps happening. And this is a microcosm of the whole thing because here she is blithely trusting one of the most infamously monstrous men in the Marvel Universe, an absolute autocrat and dictator and, and an absolute just all around terrible guy. And she just goes along with it. Like this whole the scene where she's uh, talking about energy with him and he's talking about like peace and prosperity. Like when Dr. Doom tells you that he wants peace and prosperity, what do you like? Why are you believing him? You know what his idea of peace and prosperity looks like. You are a Jewish girl from the Midwest who may or may not be bisexual at this point. Who knows? Um, you are a character who understands a marginalized viewpoint and you know that when a guy like this says he wants peace and prosperity you need to ask for who what does that mean and kitty and kitty with all of her experience would know to ask that question exactly and so it's really frustrating to see her just go along with it like when she goes what's to keep you from becoming the financial ruler of the world and he goes the energy would be free you have my word and she's like okay okay good Like, under Claremont, I can see Kitty doing that okay, because under Claremont, I would trust that when she does that, it is a cover for something devious she's already planning. Because let's make no mistake, Kitty is a devious person. Love that about her. But here, she's not allowed to be that way. And when she says that, the entire team pulls her, like, physically pulls her out of that conversation to harangue her about it. And, like, one, good for them for haranguing her, but also, like, why is she being treated like such an innocent, gullible child yes, here? Yes, yes, I know. Like, I absolutely buy a team of people who live together and who are kind of a found family being like, Kitty, what the hell are you doing? I absolutely buy that aspect of it. But also, Kitty, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> like, why does your team I have know. to step in here? Yeah, like, I mean, you assume it's going to be ironic or a double cross or whatever. And there's that a little bit because, you know, they have that comment about like, well, if Doom wants to get to Limbo, he's going to go anyway. So we might as well do this and follow him. But that doesn't really work because Kitty's behavior once she gets to Limbo shows that she really did trust doom so it undercuts its own undercutting of his innocence by making her that naive and it's just yeah i don't know i just find the way that she so easily gives the sword to doom that really really hurts my heart because i mean the bond that was with iliana she would never do that that she's giving iliana's soul to do if she does that she would never do that that's such a, a like deeply terrible character read that really proves that lobdell does not understand the relationships between these characters not understand the importance of relationships between female characters in particular and just really really frustrating and you think like throughout this i mean spoilers for future issues you think that this might get fixed in the future part of the story arc but spoilers it just does not it does not get better from here can i read one line that she has that it's indicative of this entire problem yeah after yeah. doom has the sword kitty says i didn't notice my armor's gone. I'm no longer Sorcerer Supreme of Limbo. You know how Ilyana's powers work. Like, even if she is not familiar with Doom, which she is, 
you absolutely would know your armor is gone. You only you know that you only have the armor because of the sword. Like none of that yeah. makes any sense. Like Megan, Kitty is is repeatedly characterized as clueless to the point of mental disability. Just like she she constantly misjudges Doom. She is like uh, the scene when Doom is first opening the portal to Limbo. She's asking what it is she's supposed to do, and Lobdell goes like the extra mile to add again. Like that one word yeah. implies that she's already asked this. She's already been yeah. given the instructions, but she's just not been allowed to understand it. And it's just like it's all thinking or i mean like it's no thinking it's all feeling like she goes from that panel to drawing the sword and immediately complaining about the armor and how it feels and it's extremely like it's it's that viewpoint that men have of young women where they think young women are clueless and naive and stupid and they treat them like that and they treat them as these creatures who just complain about minor inconsequential things and who have no intellectual curiosity at all. And, God, it's just so frustrating. It's so frustrating. Because, I mean, Kitty's discomfort with the armor and wielding the sword isn't because it's physically uncomfortable. <laughs> it has to do oh, with right, what uh, that armor symbolized for, like, <laughs> Ileana's journey and then some of Kitty's potential, if we're going to do a deep reading of it, discomfort and uncertainty about aspects of her relationship with Ileana. And that's just not what's happening here at all. And it's it's frustrating. And it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. I hadn't really been thought about it from this angle, but for the first... I'm actually flipping through the issue right now, and... <laughs> yeah, I'm always doing that while we record, yep. too. <laughs> there is not a single thought bubble on the part of any character until Alistair Stewart. Oh, wow, yeah. Uh, once they've already gone into the portal. Wow. And we know historically that, like, the 90s were a period where, like, the thought bubble kind of transitioned out of comics. And we know that Lobdell being on X-Men was probably, like, a, a, a significant part of that. But it's wild to see it here. Um, there is one. It, it used. Huh? I found one. I found one. You oh. know who gets to think? Doom does. Of course he does. Oh, yeah. that's oh right, right, yes. He's yeah. thinking about the painting that we he does. forget the painting. I didn't never notice that, but wow, yep. <laughs> but nobody else gets to think. They're all just talking constantly and reacting. Reacting, yeah, I was going to say, because it's evidence of people just reacting rather than thinking. Yeah, there's, there's no internalization here at all. Oh, I could keep talking about all of this all day, but we unfortunately should think about wrapping up. I wouldn't wrap this issue up. I wouldn't give it to anyone. It's terrible. For well, I, I, I think that I think that now we can just we can just fast forward three issues. We don't have to do the next couple of episodes, right? We, we can just oh, skip ahead right. to number forty. We, before we do that, I will give everybody a chance to have final thoughts, and I'll let Nola have the last last word. But maybe we'll start with you, Andrew, since we haven't heard from you for a while, and I know we're going to lose you to kid bedtime anytime. Still here. Um. <laughs> But yeah, anything that from this comic that we didn't get a chance to touch on that you want to touch on before we close? Maybe just with Kurt's disability, because I, I support Nola's reading of it. But I think there's different forms of disability. And, you know, there's a situation where you're going to get better and it's going to take time. And there's a situation where you're not. And I think for people who identify with that kind of disability in particular, it does feel like a little bit of a slap in the face when the character gets magically cured uh, out of nowhere and for reasons that are just, you know, jubilant and joyful and disavow the very concept of the hero's journey through that disability. So my take on Kurt was very different than Nola's, but I fully acknowledge what, what Nola was saying is an entirely valid take on it. It just, it really bothered me. I, I, I was offended by it the way I was offended by Oracle becoming Batgirl again. So, oh God, so much. We should talk about that at some other point, not on this show. 
I hate that. Well, yeah, I mean, because there's uh, there's two ways. Like, I mean, I can look at it both ways, too, in that, like, you know, when I was really struggling with physical symptoms of my thing, the idea of being magically cured, I mean, very appealing. And, you know, being able to experience that as a concept or, like, something is very powerful. But at the same time, yeah, that does become very punishing because certainly I blamed myself a lot for, you know, like, why can't I just do this thing of walking around cones, which I should be able to do? Because part of kind of getting better from my thing was kind of retraining your physical senses. And it was just so frustrating not to be able to do those little things. And I would get very mad at myself. So yeah, that's part of why I would have wanted to see a more kind of drawn out, you know, him having to kind of deal with that in sort of a more real way, or at least to see his reaction to, I don't know, I mean, does he have guilt about like the way that he was cured? Like, how does that make him sort of reflect on all of his other experiences? And that we didn't get that is frustrating, I guess, for me. Is that fair? Which, yeah, that also ties back to the uh, the thing we were just talking about that internalization there's none of it you know that's that's a thing that he should be allowed the time and space to think about and he's not and i think for me like the reason that i read it the way that i did was kurt's inability to teleport was always treated as an injury as a as a kind of temporary thing in the way that sean's jaw getting broken and wired shut was it was always treated as a thing that he was going to recover from eventually, even if it was scary and he wasn't quite sure. I would definitely like to see a story along these lines where somebody has something like this happen and they're told unequivocally that it is permanent. I can um, recommend one. Yeah, back up. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, oh, yeah, I can recommend another. Black Canary uh, in the pages of Green Arrow. Uh, Green Arrow and then later her solo series. She didn't have one when it first happened. But after Longbow Hunters, Dinah's character, re- and I'm not saying it's the best story, but like they at least tried to deal with the ramifications of what it would mean to lose this power that you've relied on your entire life. Uh, yeah. Because she's, supposed, yeah, to be, she's I, supposed to be permanent. Yeah, because I think that that is a... Uh... Like, I mean, you're absolutely right in that, like, I completely did not cover that. But I think that both types of stories are are important because both of those things are things that happen. Both of those things exist in the real world. There are things that you recover from and there are things that you don't. You know, I really related to this from my own experiences of recovering from my accident. But also, yeah, there are things that just don't go away. There are things that you just learn to live around and you learn to, like, it's just part of your life. And that's one of the reasons why I really like that WizKid issue. Um, I really like the fact that it stated out right that like the healing gardens can only do so much uh i really liked that he specifically said that you know yeah he could go through resurrection and get it fixed but he doesn't want to do that because yeah it was just it's great stuff because this is who he is and it's not that he's afraid of the change it's not that he wants to get better and he's afraid to take the leap he just this is who he is and like it's just it's not that important to him because like getting what what i'm saying is is getting that healed is not that important to him because this is his life and, and, like, and i think that's the kind of consideration maybe kurt doesn't get here because there is a trend yeah. in comics of disability is gross let's erase that real quick yes. and, it's, and it's I, I think kurt falls into that trap here yeah and it's especially frustrating to see on the parts of mutants because mutants specifically are exactly. ostracized yeah yeah on the on the the case of physical deformities and things like that and like you know you get stories like was it i always get them confused because both whedon and morrison did stories where scott and logan go pick up a kid who <laughs> has yeah. uh super dangerous powers and it's so frustrating that the response to that is for logan the guy with the healing power to go in and and end the kid's life in one of those stories because that's the ultimate they can't that's, find yeah it's in the ultimate universe so that's the ultimate yeah. comics one and i wasn't who wrote that um was it millar might, I it know, might have been might have been millar 
I don't remember who wrote it. I know, was always... I know the issue you're talking about, and I don't remember who wrote it. Yeah, because yeah, he, he was always, yeah. Uh, but, like, it's so frustrating because, like, you've got a character like uh, Leech, whose power is just an always active nullification field. Adapt that somehow. You've got, like, some of the greatest scientific minds in the Marvel Universe. Don't end this kid's life because his power is dangerous. Find a way to help him live with it. Yeah, I mean, there's often just sort of, like, not as much of a creative consideration of different types of power sets. And although one of the things I love so much about superhero comics in general is the exper- the thought experiments we can do about the meanings of power through <laughs> the literalized metaphors yes. of different superpowers representing different aspects of people's personalities and different ways of being powerful. And yet so often we go back to the punchy powers and laser beam powers and those are the two powers we're interested in exploring because they're both overtly physical and that's what certain people who write these stories want to do and know how to do. Yes. Uh, remind me sometime to go off about Doug Ramsey because I will go off about Doug no. Ramsey. <laughs> Oh, oh. We can have um, you back I, to talk about Doug, Doug Lock. Oh. I love Doug I, Ramsey so much. I love much. Doug without Doug Lock. I think Doug is brilliant. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> and and the, the mentality at the time that his power was boring or not useful is maybe one of the most short-sighted and unimaginative things I've ever seen happen in comics. There is no reason that Doug Ramsey can't rule the world right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Mav, did you have a final thought that you want to get in here? I, I mean, I, I think everything that we talked about today is so much more interesting than this book. So uh, it is and nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we have we've got a lot. I, you know, go read Nola's website instead of this book. That's fine. <laughs> yes, that's very good. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I, I know. I mean, it's weird. This entire show is supposed to be us crowing about how great this series is, and this this is the problematic. I've I've been saying since we started this thing, we're gonna get to a point where we're just gonna I'm just gonna be sad for three episodes, and that's now because I love this series, and this is the one time where I where I feel like like I hope nobody is starting our show on this episode because they'll never come back. That seems and, unfair. They will because this episode was so great. How could you dare say that? I love this episode. <laughs> I love our discussion, but then, but you know, if they're reading along, like if you're like, oh, they're going to be know. hooked on our show from this episode. I they don't have so. to read the comic. So. <laughs> you know, just yeah, like if you just listen to our show and and didn't actually go out and read it, great. Because if just, yeah. I can't imagine just like oh god, putting yourself through this. I hate this book. I hate it so much. <laughs> okay, well, my very quick final thought was just to give a shout out to Tigra and make sure that our listeners who are not aware of her history knows about her very interesting feminist history, which is that she was originally Greer Nelson the Cat, which was Marvel, once it was called Marvel, their first superhero comic uh, written and drawn by women by Linda Feed and Mary Severin. And she is an explicitly feminist themed superhero. And I have written about her before and then becomes Tigra, who is a complicated character, but I still like her. And I just wanted to give her a little shout out. And if you're interested in more about the history of the cat we'll link some stuff in our show notes also wanda's in this but you wouldn't recognize her because <laughs> you would not because because a lot of interesting stuff was happening over in west coast avengers which i'm just gonna guess lovedell didn't read before he wrote the pages of <laughs> this book because everybody's completely out of character from what was happening in that book too so i was gonna say like we we, we talked about so much and we didn't even cover the lady delight going to visit the, the avengers it's because it's a um, character that's a little random it's random a little random yeah and it's not not a character like if you've been reading this book for 35 issues 37 issues and you know the lady of the lake that's an arthurian thing that we've never yeah. mentioned before and never going to again so don't worry about it <laughs> 
but there is one observation I really want to make. Uh, Do it. The entire scene before where where the Lady of the Lake shows up is the exact same scene that Lopto opens the issue with with the with Excalibur. They are at a communal gathering. They are preparing food. Somebody has a hilarious mishap involving the said food going flying. There is a magical superhero save, and then a character that and no one is expecting stuff? shows up shows up to say hi. I need you. It's got to be an accident. <laughs> it is don't want to give lobbed out too much scene. credit it is yeah. <laughs> and i appreciate uh, and that parallelism in theory yeah it is kind of wild to me that it exists uh within the same issue i do love that the lady of the lake says despite their best intentions the defenders of the realm known as excalibur are his unwitting pawns because boy if that isn't a summary of the issue as a whole <laughs> true true she's uh, all of us <laughs> any other final thoughts nola before we leave the first issue of prometheum exchange behind i hope it goes better for the rest of you <laughs> i'm glad that i don't have to read the other two <laughs> Well, we appreciate that, and we will uh, <laughs> take your take your well wishes uh, into the next two issues. <laughs> I was not born to live a man's life, but to be the stuff of future memory. The fellowship was a brief beginning, a fair time that cannot be forgotten. And because it will not be forgotten. That fair time may come again. So that is it for today, other than to thank Nola from the bottom of our hearts for elevating our conversation of this issue. We're so grateful, truly, truly, truly. But before we go, we must remind our lovely listeners about where they can find you and some of the fabulous things that you get up to. What would you like to plug for our lovely listeners, Nola? Um, obviously, womenwriteaboutcomics.com. We call it WWAC for short, but the URL is <laughs> Women Write About Comics, the whole thing. You can find me on Twitter at Nola Bow. I do a lot of uh, yelling about X-Men and shitposting in general. <laughs> And yeah, that, I mean, uh, you can also obviously find me at uh, comicsxf.com. I do the regular sword coverage with uh, Corey there. And sometimes I write things like that Paul Smith article that I'm pretty proud of. Yeah, it's great. We'll definitely link that in our show notes. Thank you so, so much again. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Next, in one week's time, we will be on to episode 39, discussing Excalibur 38, Out on a Limbo, in which we will be discussing Promethean Exchange again, or not discussing it? We will see what happens. Kurt and his alternate universe wife, Mac Wanda Maximoff, team up in that one. Will sparks fly? We'll see, with another notable guest who's super excited to chat about that dynamic. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes which you can find via our website or the box podcast youtube channel as always if you want to chat with us about excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and Matt, for another transporting conversation thank you nola for helping us slice through it thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought Forum music for a truly epic theme song play us out that's it. Who did it?